you have your Bibles with you, I hope you'll turn with me to John chapter 4. Uh, if you don't have one with you, there should be one on the pew in front of you. Um, the pew Bible should be on page 1131. We've been in the, in the book of Mark for quite a while now. Matt has been teaching through that, and we finished chapter 8 last week, so we are officially halfway through the book of Mark. We'll pick up there again next week. But for today, well, I decided to, to take a break just for one week and speak on John chapter 4. I don't know how many of you have ever seen one, but um, there's a book that comes out every year and has since, since 1955 called the Guinness Book of World Records. Anybody ever seen one of those? I used to watch and see them all the time when I'd go to my grandparents' house as, as a child, and I was just fascinated by it because they would have all kinds of, of odd world records in there. As I was studying for the, the text this morning, I, I couldn't help myself just out of nostalgia, I guess. I went and checked to see if there was a record listed for the world record for, for number of times a person has been married in their lifetime. Sure enough, it's there. The record belongs to a man by the name of Glenn Wolf who, oddly enough, was a Baptist minister. Can't make that up, right? I don't know what number you, you have in mind as to, to what you think that record may be, but I was way, way off. Mr. Wolf, in his 89 years of life, was married 29 times. Heard that right, 29. Once I saw that, I knew I had to do a little research just to find out more about this guy. And I went to a couple of different places. Here's a couple of things I found. His shortage, shortest marriage was for 19 days. His longest was for 11 years. He left one wife because she ate sunflower seeds in bed. He left another because she used his toothbrush. I thought this was an interesting quote on Mr. Wolf. He married teenagers and grandmothers, farm girls and drug addicts, preachers and thieves, taking and shedding partners as casually as a square dancer. Mr. Wolf's last marriage was to a lady named Linda Essex, who I guess appropriately enough holds the female record for a number of times being married in a lifetime at 23. At Mr. Wolf's death in 1997, they lived apart. He lived in California. She lived in Indiana. And claiming she was financially broke, she said she couldn't afford to pay for the funeral and skipped the service altogether, as did all of the other women that he had married. While Glenn Wolf holds the record for the most marriages in a lifetime, it may surprise you that I believe that all of us here, myself included, have something in common with Mr. Wolf. This morning, as we look at a conversation that took place between Jesus and a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, it's important that we consider another conversation that had taken place just prior to this one. You're probably familiar with it. John chapter 3, Jesus has what may well be one of the most well-known conversations in all of Scripture. 
It's there that we find Jesus having a talk with a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. He was a teacher. He was a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus would have considered himself to be a very moral man. Somebody who took pride in obeying all the commands, all the laws that are found in Scripture. And yet, in spite of this, Jesus tells Nicodemus that wasn't good enough. The lesson we learned in that conversation is that neither Nicodemus nor you nor I could possibly live a good enough life to earn our way into heaven. It's only by faith alone in Christ alone that anyone enters there. And shortly after that conversation, we come to another encounter here in John chapter 4. We look at it this morning, but this time it's with an entirely different type of person. If you're keeping notes, we'll have four points. Point number one, let's look at the circumstances of the conversation. The circumstances of the conversation, verses 1 through 6. Read along with me. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he went to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, we won't spend a lot of time on this portion this morning, but I do want us to look briefly at the beginning of our text here in chapter 4 because we see the setting for what's to come. Soon after his conversation with Nicodemus, uh, Jesus finds out that the Pharisees are, are aware that he's developing quite a following, making many disciples. Our text even tells us so much so that it was more than John the Baptist who the Pharisees also had their eye on. Because of this, Jesus knows that a, con a confrontation is coming with the Pharisees. It's inevitable. He knows that that encounter is soon coming, soon approaching, but the time for it is not yet now. So in order to avoid this conflict until the appointed time, Jesus decides to leave Judea, head back to Galilee, and continue his ministry there for a season. In doing so, we see in verse 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria in order to get there. There's a couple different thoughts on uh, why Jesus had to pass through there. A lot of people would say it was um, geographically, it made sense. You're going directly north to Galilee. There's a main road that goes straight there. You go through Samaria. So uh, most people, some people say that that's why uh, he, he would have had to, had to go through there. But understand, that's not the only way to go. There is a, a longer route and many of the devout Jews would take that route in order to not have to go through Samaria for reasons that we'll discuss shortly. 
I personally believe that the most likely explanation based on the conversation that Jesus had just had with Nicodemus is that Jesus had to go through there because God had ordained a meeting with a woman. So Jesus and his disciples, they're on the way to Galilee. It's about a three-day trip. And they stop in a town called Sychar. Jesus is worn out. Having traveled likely already hours that morning, they often started at day, um, daylight. He stops by a very well-known well. It says, our text says it's about the sixth hour. That, that would put us at about noon. He stops there to rest. So we've seen the circumstances. We've seen the setting. Point number two, let's meet the woman who was thirsty. Verses 7 through 15, read along with me. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where did you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus had stopped at the well to rest while his disciples had gone into town to get food. And then right at the heat of day, a woman shows up to get water from the well. But Jesus makes what seems to be a normal request here, right? I'm tired. I'm thirsty. I don't have a bucket. You do. Can you give me some of this water? To us, that doesn't sound unreasonable at all. Makes, makes good sense. And yet, there's really nothing normal about this request because of who is doing the asking and to whom he is asking for this water. Now, understand that the, the Jews hated the Samaritans. D.A. Carson, in his commentary, says that a popular prayer of the Jews went something like this. Lord, don't remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Basically saying, Lord, don't save those people. And this begs the question, why the hatred? There's two main reasons. One, the Samaritans consisted of Jews who had intermarried with non-Jews, with Gentiles. I don't know how far your memory goes back. Um, this is the equivalent of the Hatfields marrying into the McCoys. That's one reason. The second reason would be because these half-Jews had taken 
some of the pagan religious practices from the Gentiles and combined them with theirs. In a nutshell, the Jews hated the Samaritans because of race, because of religion. And just to be clear, the hatred between these two groups of people went both ways. They despised each other. So this Samaritan woman at the well is understandably confused at this point. Now add to that the fact that in that day, Jewish rabbis in that day would not talk to any woman in public, even the wives. So this woman has every reason in the world to wonder why is this Jewish man asking me for a drink of water? Me, a Samaritan woman. Then Jesus really throws her for a loop here in, in verse 10. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Samaritan woman sees this Jewish man offering her what she assumes is spring water. It's running water. He doesn't even have a bucket. She also thinks he's implying that he is greater than her ancestor, Jacob, who had actually given them that well. But Jesus continues on. He says, telling her that whoever drinks from this well water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I have will never thirst again. Now we understand what kind of water she is thinking about here. But what is Jesus talking about when he tells her he has water that leads to eternal life? The water Jesus is referring to isn't physical water. It's not something that would even quench a, a physical thirst. No, Jesus is speaking of something that will quench her spiritual thirst. He's using her physical need to try to help her understand her spiritual need. She's not quite there yet. Now, since in her mind, she's still thinking of physical water, what Jesus seems to be offering sounds like a, a great deal to her. She says in verse 15, give me this water. Two reasons, so I won't be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And it's true that she doesn't want to come here daily. But Jesus knows that there is more to the story than just her desire to not have to labor back and forth every day. Notice that this woman here, the text says, she comes at noon. It's the hottest part of the day. And she comes alone. This is not normal. In that day, the women came in groups. You have safety. You have conversation. They would come in groups. All of them would come. And all of them would come in the earliest part of the day or the latest part of the day when it was coolest. Not this woman. No, she comes at noon. She comes alone. And there's a reason why. Point number three, the conviction that exposes the need. Verses 16 through 24. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the woman up till now still hasn't quite caught on to the fact that Jesus is speaking of quenching her spiritual thirst, her spiritual need. So Jesus decides to take this from a different angle. He says, go home, get your husband, come back. And she's probably thinking this is an odd request. But she tells them very bluntly, very shortly, I have no husband. Imagine her surprise when Jesus, this Jewish man who she'd never met before in her life, tells her she's right. He says she's right. She's, she's had five husbands and the man she's currently with isn't even her husband. Now this explains why she comes to the well at the hottest part of the day and why she comes alone. To the other women in the town, she's an outcast. She's the talk of the town. She's the brunt of all the jokes as all the other women come to the well every day at the coolest part of the day. And this woman wants to do whatever she can to avoid the stairs and the snide comments that would come with coming with them. The point Jesus is trying to make to her here is just like this water in Jacob's well, all of the relationships with the men that she's had in her life has left her thirsty again and again and again. When one didn't satisfy, they left her or she left them, and she goes looking for another She just doesn't know that the reason she can't seem to quench her desire is because her need isn't physical, it's spiritual. Church family, that's, that's just as true of all of us today. We may look at this woman in our text who was married five times. We may look at Glenn Wolf who was married 29 times. We may laugh, we may mock them to some extent, but understand that both of them were trying to satisfy a spiritual thirst in their lives with something that was never meant to do so. And every one of us has tried to do the exact same thing. Although we may have tried to quench that thirst, we may have tried to quench that need with something different. St. Augustine, a theologian who lived a couple hundred years after Jesus, I think he hit the nail on the head. 
Augustine said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Because we were created for a relationship with God, we will never be truly satisfied until we find our fulfillment in Jesus and in Jesus alone. The woman, understandably, is, is taken aback by what Jesus knew about her past. And she assumes Jesus must be a prophet in order to, to know this. So what's likely an attempt to, to change an uncomfortable conversation, uncomfortable topic, she asked Jesus to settle a disagreement that's been going on for a long time between the Jews and the Samaritans as far as to where is the right place to worship. Jews said it's in Jerusalem. Samaritans say it's at Mount Gerizim, right there close to where they're at. In verse 21 and 22, Jesus drops another surprise on her. He tells this woman that the time is soon coming when the location won't matter at all. Jesus is saying that after his hour has come, after his death, burial, and resurrection, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father seeks such people to worship him. Notice that Jesus says here, to worship in spirit and truth. He's not saying one or the other, but, but both. True worshipers will worship in spirit. It won't be worship that's just performing a ritual. It won't be something that's just done externally. In our day, one example may be going to church every Sunday, checking off that box that we've done our weekly spiritual duty. No, then and now, worship is worship that comes from inside of us. It's worship that comes from the heart. Church family, hear me, hear me understand me. I am glad you are here today. I can't think of a place I would rather you be than here in church this morning. But it's not just about location. It has to do with heart. But Jesus also says it's not just in spirit because there are people in churches all over the world meeting right now who are worshiping as sincerely as they possibly can, but the problem is it's not to the true God. Jesus says to the woman, true worshipers will also worship in truth. They will worship the God who has been revealed in the scriptures, which the Samaritans did not do. Understand, church, Jesus makes clear to the woman. He makes clear to us. It's not about location. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit, and they will worship him in truth. We've seen the circumstances of the conversation. We've met the woman who was thirsty. We've seen the conviction that exposes a need. Let's meet the Christ who satisfies forever. 
verses 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. What Jesus had been saying was just too much for this woman to completely grasp. But she clearly has hope here. That when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all of these things. Imagine for a minute that you are this Samaritan woman. All her life, she has longed for, to find something or someone to quench the spiritual thirst in her life that just would not go away. She's been looking in all the wrong places to find what or who could quench it. John doesn't give us the name of the woman here in the text. But I think in a very real way, we could put our name there. I think she represents all of us. Whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're a child, whether you're a teen, whether you're an adult, we are all born with a thirst, a deep longing within us that only a relationship with Jesus Christ can quench. And then imagine being this woman, a woman who has drunk so deeply from the things that this world has to offer and still found herself thirsty. As this man standing before her looks her in her eyes and says, this Messiah that you're speaking of, this Messiah that you long for, I'm he. Church family, Jesus tells this woman, Jesus is telling us, I am the long-awaited Messiah. I am the Savior who was sent to the world to give eternal life to all who would believe in, who would trust in, who would submit and follow me as Savior and Lord. Jesus says, I and only I am the one who can fill that God-shaped hole in your heart. I and only I am the one who can quench that spiritual thirst within you. If we go back to where we started, why does the Bible have Jesus' encounters with, uh, with Nicodemus and, and with the Samaritan woman beside each other? Because I believe between the two, they cover the entire spectrum of those who need to be saved. Man, woman, Jew, non-Jew, moral, immoral, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Church, here's the, here's the beauty of the gospel. Although our text shows us that no one is beyond the need of a Savior, it also shows us that no one is beyond the reach of the Savior, Jesus the Messiah. My question to each of you this morning is simply this. Where do you Try to find your ultimate satisfaction. Where do you try to find your ultimate fulfillment? What well do you go to over and over and over again to try to quench the spiritual thirst within you? And for some, it may be as the woman at the well. Maybe we try to find our 
fulfillment in our spouse or in, in a boyfriend, in a girlfriend. Maybe it's in your children or, or your grandchildren. For some, it could be a job. Maybe it's material things. Maybe it's a home. Maybe it's a vehicle. Maybe it's your reputation. It could be any number of things. But, but hear me well. God loves you too much to allow you to find ultimate fulfillment in anything other than a relationship with his son, Jesus. You may be here today and, and have received this living water that our text speaks of. You may already know Jesus as Savior and, and Lord. If so, praise God for it. But even if that's so, if you're honest, you may be saying to yourself, I know Jesus. But at times, I still feel thirsty. Still times when I, when I feel empty. Maybe that's you even today. If so, the answer is simple. Drink deeply from Jesus. Once you have salvation, you don't lose it. It is eternal. But if you're a child of the living God, you also know that joy in our lives can be fleeting at times. And just as God used the Apostle John here to tell us in our, in our text of what this living water is and how to get it, God uses this same man to write in Revelation 4 to the church at Ephesus. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember from where you are falling and repent. Christian, if you've strayed and attempted to quench that spiritual thirst within you with things of the world, understand God, God hasn't moved. Remember. Repent. Return. Rekindle. Drink deeply and find your satisfaction in Jesus alone. You also may be here today and have never received this living water that only Jesus can provide. You may be continually drinking from the things of the world and, and they may bring you satisfaction. They may bring you pleasure for a season. But ultimately, they fail to quench the spiritual thirst within us. That's you, Revelation twenty-two seventeen says, Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Church, you can never earn it. You can only receive it as a gift. If you've never put your trust in Jesus to receive that gift of eternal life, I encourage you to do so today. I'd love to talk to you right after the service. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you today, please don't leave here without coming and letting me know this same Jesus who saved the Samaritan woman, who offered the gift of eternal life to her, is making the same offer to you today. Would you pray with me? Father, as we, as we see in your word, the conversation that took place 
That Samaritan woman at some point represents every one of us. We, I, have looked to find satisfaction. We've looked to find ultimate fulfillment in things that were never meant to provide it. But Father, your word is clear. You offer the free gift that provides exactly what we thirst for, what we long for within us. And it is a relationship with your Son as Lord and Savior. Father, there's many of us here today, myself included, who can honestly say that that joy has waned at times. Father, your love hasn't changed. We just decided to find fulfillment elsewhere. If that's our story this morning, may we return, may we repent, may we drink deeply from a relationship with your son. And Father, for those who who don't know you, who don't have that relationship, may today be the day. We thank you, Father, for offering something that we could never earn, but you freely give as a gift. We thank you, and we ask these things in the name of our soon-coming King. Amen.